today is Palm Sunday, and I did not go out and uh, get palms for us, and I don't know what you would do anyways. I just feel like it's a bad investment for us. Yeah, everybody's cut their palms. There we go. That was Joe's uh, dad joke. That was great. <laughs> like, I got it. Um, that was a dad joke. Um, but it is Palm Sunday, and I feel good because I feel like I am going to introduce a Palm Sunday sermon with something that has never been used before, and that is an, an illustration from Public Enemy. Now, I don't know if you know Public Enemy. Rob is representing today with his uh, Digital Underground Humpty Dance shirt, uh, which is an 80s, 90s rap, and sometimes we associate 80s, 90s rap with just this, you know, ridiculous, well, it was awesome, but this ridiculous, you know, like, comical approach to it, but Public Enemy was not comical in the least, and they were actually pretty frightening, and they were on the forefront of trying to push music toward issue based uh, philosophy, and uh, specifically, they wanted to talk is issues of race and of uh, institutional oppression, and um, it was in 1987 that Chuck D and the, the two prominent members in, in the front here, we have Flavor Flav, which is really sad because most people know Flavor Flav because of his reality show uh, takeoff, and uh, you know, it, what that, I, I'm afraid because I feel it diminishes what Public Enemy did because Chuck D, who I still consider to be one of the greatest rappers in the history of rap, really brought lyrics that made you uh, contemplate what was going on. And in 1987, he wrote the song, Don't Believe the Hype. And, you know, I, I am not going to play it. You can listen to it on the way to your brunch today because nothing says post-church like Don't Believe the Hype in Public Enemy. But um, it was the second single release from their album, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back. So you get the idea of what they were trying to say. And the purpose of the song, Don't Believe the Hype, was to push individuals to think for themselves and to not just merely take the messages that, was, that were being portrayed to them. And I feel like that's an apt message even here decades later. In 2012, Chuck D gave an interview about the song Don't Believe the Hype, and this is what he said. In the 1980s, you had the beginnings of cable. I had five stations. Now you have 500 channels and the internet, which gives you everything at once. And there's a lot of hype going on, and hype is usually the thing that's used to carry the cell. People just need to be literate and know what's coming at them. Schools taught people how to be literate in the sense of reading and writing and arithmetic, but now you need people to be literate regarding the media blitz. People coming at you constantly, trying to get in your pocket and spin something on you. There's a lot of hype going on, and I think we see that pervasively. A lot of that in this political system depends on where you get your news, and that then usually shapes your worldview. And what we're looking at here, which Chuck D you know, says well in the song and in this quote here from 2012, is this idea that we need to get beyond the hype. Now, we're in Luke, and again, I love this because I, I, I'm almost confident that nobody has ever used Chuck D in Public Enemy to introduce a sermon on Palm Sunday, but we are talking Within the, the closing aspects of the life of Jesus, this idea of hype and how it even affected the ministry of Jesus. So Will's going to read for us today. Will, if you'll get started, Luke chapter 19 is where we're at. Luke chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 28, and you're going to read verses 28 through 35, please.
1925? Yes, sir. All right. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. In the scriptures and Christian tradition, this is known as the beginning of Passion Week. And the week before Jesus died, the Friday, he had maneuvered through these two small villages of Bethphage and Bethany. We're usually more familiar with Bethany because uh, that is the the dwelling place of uh, Lazarus and his sisters Mary and Martha. So Jesus frequented there. A little further outside of the city of Jerusalem was the little village of Bethphage where he is you know, maneuvering his way through this uh, area heading towards Jerusalem. So this wasn't like he wasn't taking the highway, the express route. He was taking the back roads, the local, to try to get a good sense of the people there and they're moving toward Jerusalem. And he, he eventually would have ended up at this vista, the Mount of Olives, and this is an artist's rendering from the early 1900s. Um, But the interesting thing about this is that this would have been the vista from the Temple Mount looking over toward the hill. So you can see this is, again, these churches would not have existed. But what we want to look at is, is this pathway right here would have been the same path that Jesus then took into the city of Jerusalem at this time. Why was it important that he was headed to Jerusalem? Sometimes, so many times we hear the names of these biblical places and it's just like, that's Jesus' bit. He just goes to Jerusalem. It's his thing. Specifically at this time, it was the time of Passover. And Kelly and I had a compelling conversation about this this week because it might be confusing, is that we're going to a Passover Seder with our Jewish friends here and she was just you know, looking at the calendar. It's in April. And you're like, wait a second. Doesn't Easter always line up with Passover? Isn't it this thing? And no, because... Easter is based upon the Gregorian calendar and Passover is based on a Jewish calendar. So do not let it confuse you. And if I have just confused you, I apologize. But it is this idea that every good Jew in the world at that time would have attempted to make it to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. It's estimated by scholars that the city of Jerusalem would be filled with about a million people. And friends, Jerusalem is not a large city, even though we see the walls around it. You can walk all the way around the city within about 40 minutes time. Like you can totally circle it. So it was a small place. You throw a million people in there, it was going to be packed. Why did they want to go to Jerusalem for Passover? Because that was the most important festival for God's people. Because it reminded them of when the when they were passed over during the time of the Exodus and then gained their freedom from Egypt. And that freedom then was indicative in all that they believed about what God was doing in their lives, is that ours is the God that frees. And he provides us freedom. And the Jewish people for centuries had been living under oppression. If you go nine centuries before Jesus, or eight centuries before Jesus was born, there's the Assyrians about six centuries before he was born. The Babylonians about three centuries before he was born. The Greeks came in. And about a century before Jesus was born, the Romans came in. And for all of those centuries, God's people were longing for freedom from their oppression. So they returned to Jerusalem and 
celebrated because they wanted this freedom to come to them. And I believe, friends, it's no irony that this is why Jesus chose to go to Jerusalem at this time, that it all wove itself together because he was going to be, bring freedom to them. So we needed a mode of transportation. We might not really have needed it because you can see the walk from where Jesus would have been would just have been over the hill. He didn't need himself a donkey. He walked everywhere, but this wasn't just for transportation purposes. This was prophetic. And we began the service reading from Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, that the, the Messiah was supposed to enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey. So we have some Jedi mind trick right here, right? Where Jesus is like, just go over to the, to the next village and just say, hey, I, I need this donkey. Jesus needs it. The Lord needs it. And they walk in, and that's just got to be the weirdest conversation ever, right? Like, hey, you're taking my donkey. What are you taking? The Lord needs it. Cool. Just like, it, it was peculiar. It's this bizarre thing. But I think it's supposed to also illustrate for us the roles that Jesus played. And this is a tri-perspectival view on who Jesus was. But his role as prophet and priests are important, and here he's being prophetic, and he's heading into Jerusalem, the place of the temple, where, where his priestly instincts kick in, because after this, we're not even going to get in here. When he gets into Jerusalem, he clears the temple of the money changers, but most importantly, this aspect is that Jesus entering now is not just this lowly, meek prophet entering the city of Jerusalem. The king is coming. Well, let's read verses 36 through 40 of Luke chapter 19. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Isn't that great verses right there in verse 40 by Jesus saying that? They cannot not be quiet. They can't. Because if they don't speak, then the very stones, and this is actually a rocky place heading down here. It says the stones would cry out, and that's what we have. Now, the most disconcerting thing for maybe you and I right here is as I read through Luke's text, and Luke doesn't even have palms in Palm Sunday. He's ruined the whole story. But we know that it's not just all about the palms. And I, you know, I don't know, you know, again, we don't have any, but the palm in Jesus's time was actually a symbol of rebellion. And waving one would have been akin to waving a nationalistic flag. And even though Luke misses this aspect, there is these, uh, these undertones of rebellion. Why are they so excited about Jesus coming in? Because Jesus would have gonna come. The Messiah was supposed to flip the oppression upside down. They were supposed to relish their freedom. So we see the path that Jesus comes into the city. And this is actually a picture of when Kelly and I were in Jerusalem and we were able to walk down this hill, which is, you know, it's not quite as nice with a little Volkswagen bus along there. You know, there's like a can of box of motor oil just leaning against the brick wall right there. But you, you think of the idea that he ascends down here and back in Jesus's day, even though the path that, you know, that line he was taking, you could see it going across the valley and there's actually a little road at the bottom right now. In Jesus's day, the, 
the path would have been more direct because there was actually a ramp that was built across the Kidron Valley so that Jesus and all of the followers around there would have been able to come into the city just straight away. Now, what we have with Jesus right here is we're in the midst of two different ceremonies of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And the first one, which I'm, I'm pretty sure I misspelled here, it's Adventus with no O. And Adventus is this Latin terminology for the coronation march of a king into the city. And we know that Alexander the Great, 300 years before, had taken a similar route. Now, the, the, um, the, the complex at that time in the temple was more rudimentary, so there wasn't a path. But he entered through the same side of Jerusalem Alexander the Great did and was heralded a king at that time. So the Adventist ceremony that a king would enter into the city was very prevalent in the minds of the followers of Jesus. And the, the big difference within this is instead of Jesus entering on this nice shining horse steed, he's going in on a donkey, on a jackass, on, on, on a petulant creature, but it's showing that he is a king of such a level that it doesn't even matter what mode of transportation he has, he supersedes that. So Adventus is one thing. The second thing we need to realize by reading the book of Exodus chapter 12, 1 through 3, what would have happened on this Sunday before Passover? And we read, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family and one for each of his household. It's estimated because of the crowds that 250,000 sheep were slaughtered during Passover. And Jerusalem is situated on a hill, friends, with that much blood, it's very likely that the blood was even flowing through the streets. And though you and I found that repugnant, we have to understand that for them, it was indicative of God's freedom and delivery. In the same way that they killed the lambs back in the days of Moses and Aaron so that the, that, that the spirit of death would pass over them, similarly they did so because they were hoping, they were longing for freedom. And this was the same day that the high priest then would leave Jerusalem and go out to the hillside and come back into the town with his sheep, which was the most important sheep in all of Israel at that time because it was a sheep of the high priest. And he would enter into the golden gate and then go straight to the temple complex. Now, what's interesting is this wall was built hundreds of years after Jesus, but they're pretty sure archaeologically that the actual entrance is right underneath this. The reason they don't excavate is because of politics, because it's sitting right in the midst of a Muslim cemetery. But that would have been the point of entry that the priest would have come in. So somewhere, if you're following the timing, why is Jesus doing this entry right about this time? Yeah, it's the Adventist ceremony, but at the same time, there was probably a crowd surrounding that area because they were either waiting or the high priest had just already come through the gate, and here comes Jesus. And as he's coming in, we see the scene that's developing to the point that they're shouting out, to the point that the Pharisees are pissed, to the point that they're just saying, this is the Messiah. He's coming in and we're thrilled and we're excited. That's the scene, right? So if you are a Christian, you understand like this day, we're supposed to be excited. We're supposed to understand that Jesus comes into Jerusalem as the king, and therefore we wave our palms with gladness, understanding that he brings freedom in. 
But friends, I've taught and preached, and that's why this, I didn't have to mine deep for this background material because I've taught and preached and talked about this to- topic a lot. And I think it's because it's so essential to who we are during this week, right? It's Palm Sunday. But this was the first year I just stopped because when you preach the same thing over and over again, you're like, okay, do I just give the same thing out or should I actually look at this again? And every once in a while, friends, I do diligence and I try to think, okay, let's look at the scene. And this is the first year that I really looked at the scene and said, how peculiar was this? It was extremely peculiar because we focus on the throngs who are supporting Jesus but we don't see the broader scene. Let me give you a personal example that maybe I can do this. Uh, uh, we go to Taste of Cincinnati. It's coming up here in a few months. I don't know if you go to Taste of Cincinnati. Now, even though I like being around people, I hate crowds. Like I just don't, and, and usually crowds that are usually in some sort of drunken stupor. So when it comes to Taste of Cincinnati, usually what I like to do is get there early, you know, I can get in before the crowds get really crazy and then out and I can be like, oh, I experienced it, that's great. Well, every once in a while we have friends coming in town, they're like, let's go down at like four o'clock in the afternoon or, you know, six o'clock and you're like, that's a great idea. And you head down to the Taste of Cincinnati. We know this experience, have you been there? You're shoulder to shoulder, you know, and especially if you have a kid, you know, and one of the reasons we used to go so early when Kaylin was young is that if you're trying to maneuver a stroller through there, that's a death wish. And then, you know, as you're going through the crowd, you're trying to hold on to your kid because you don't want them to, you know, get plowed over by some drunk person. It's a, it's a scene, right? It's crazy. And even within that huge crowd then, there's a little sub-scenes. Like, I don't know if it, I th- I'm pretty sure it was last year that we were going through the crowd, and on one of the corners, there was these street preachers set up. And if they didn't do it last year, it's been in the past couple of years, and if some of you have known, they have the whole sign set up, like, you're going to hell and you should enjoy it or whatever, and... Then, you know, then you have the people coming up shouting at them, you know, because they're like, I'm drunk and I've got a good theological point. And then you have like the, you know, the people who are like, no, I'm really a Christian and this is right. And basically it's just this chaotic, crazy scene. Anybody, if you've not seen it, you understand what I'm saying, right? So that was the last year. But let me tell you about a few years ago. There's this scene. Is that we're walking through the crowd and there's this big other circle crowd coming with us, right? Like, it's coming towards us. Like, there's this mob within the subset of the Taste of Cincinnati crowd, and in the midst of it was the Naked Cowboy. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with the Naked Cowboy. Is anybody not? Because otherwise, if you're not, I've got to explain this, because you're going to be like, this is the craziest church service ever. Okay, Will. And maybe the reason why is because you're not from Cincinnati, because he is from Cincinnati, Ohio. He grew up in the Green Hills area. And his whole shtick was, and he actually has a UC degree, which, you know, go Bearcats? I don't know. But the thing is, is that he made his living being at Times Square, and he's wearing nothing but a guitar and his skivvies, which I church redacted that for us for our ability to eat lunch well later. But the naked cowboy is coming through, so he's not really naked. I guess I should, that should be the point of the story. So he, is, he has skivvies on and cowboy boots, so it's there. But it's still flipping awkward, right? I mean, I don't know, has anybody actually seen this dude? Like, we saw him. So he's coming through the crowd, right? But there's a sub-crowd around the naked cowboy that is maneuvering through the taste of Cincinnati. So it's like, here's this packed crowd, and in the minute, there's a minute, well, there's this cell of people following him. It's the craziest scene. So you're like, you know, trying to get a, I'm not going to get a picture of that. Like, what am I going to do with that crap? Right? So you're just watching the, the crowd within the crowd come through Naked Cowboy. Here's the thing. Within that, like, sub-crowd, I can't imagine that they thought, like, 
let's go down to the Taste of Cincinnati today because maybe the naked cowboy will be there and we can just stalk him the, the whole afternoon and we could like hang around him. I'm sure what happened was they were down there and I'm sure there was multiple beers involved within this. And then the naked cowboy said, and they're like, let's follow him and let's see what happens. And they joined within the crowd. Now, I'm going to get naked cowboy off the scene <clears throat> and bring us back in. And by the way, public enemy, naked cowboy, but it's never been done on Palm Sunday. So I'm racking it up. I'm racking it up here. But stick with me. What I wanted to establish was the idea that in this scene in Jerusalem, that crowd was there. They were here for Passover, okay? And it's not like Jesus announced his plans, hence with the Jedi mind trick with getting the donkey, right? Like, hey, you didn't give us a donkey? Okay, so it's not like people knew. It's like today Jesus is showing up. Similar to that scene, the crowd was there, and here comes Jesus. Now, because they weren't within this technological world, even within that crowd, even though Jesus had been all over aspects of Israel, there were probably many, many people who had no idea who Jesus was. They probably had no clue. They were just Jews in for the festival. And as this guy's coming in and they're like, what is it? It's like, he's riding on a donkey. Like, this is a scene because they understood the prophecy. So they were probably were just like, maybe this is it. And again, I'm not sure if it was Taste of Cincinnati that they were inebriated shouting out, but they just started shouting out. And I would guarantee that some of these people that were so excited about Jesus there had never seen him before, but they were there because of the skeptical, of the spectacle. They followed the crowd. Friends, I'm telling you, and this is the thing that I don't think we really see about the scene, is that this was hype. This was hype. And yes, even though in the midst of that scene, there was truth inherent in what Jesus was doing. The king of kings was entering into the city of Jerusalem, heading towards his death. I don't think that's why they were shouting out all of them. I think many of them shouted out because it was the scene. But you know what? It doesn't bother Jesus, does it? Because what did he say? You know, Jesus, tell your followers to shut up. He's like, no, this is what they have to do. It's like, even though they might have been there for the wrong reason, they were compelled to do it. Do me a favor. Let's finish this up, Will. Verses 41 through 44. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. This, friends, is where hype goes to die. It ends here. So we don't know exactly when this happens. Is this just Jesus thinking internally on his way into the city? Is this when he dismounts the donkey as he's there? We don't know, but this is the aspect of Jesus's understanding of his role. And he gets to this beautiful city, coming in like royalty. He is the king, the prophet, the priest. He is entering in and he says, and by the way, Jerusalem, you just don't get it. Even though you're shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, you don't even understand that. And what's going to happen to you is that you are going to experience the worst imaginable result. This city will be destroyed. Now, when you look at the scholarly writings about this, very often, this is one of the reasons why 
um, more skeptical scholars like to place the writing of the Gospels after the events of 70 AD. And what happens in 70 AD is that um, the city of Jerusalem falls. And it's, it's a series of events that starts some minor revolt with the Jew. But 70 AD is the preeminent event within Jewish history because that is the last time Jerusalem falls. And it's still this date that within Jewish festivals they mourn this event. So one of the reasons that skeptical scholars are like, oh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is written after 70 AD because they don't like the idea that Jesus was actually prophetic. We see it in Matthew chapter 24. In every one of the Gospels, Jesus basically predicts that Jerusalem is going to fall, which is antithesis to what the crowds were excited about cheering. See, the hype surrounding Jesus' entry was, here comes the Messiah, and he is going to make all of this right according to their preconceived notions. You know, the city of Jerusalem, I don't know if you look like etymology, but that last word, Salem, is derivative from the Greek word shalom, which is the word for peace. And Jesus is entering into the city of peace, and he is saying, you will have no peace because you will reject me, and therefore this will happen. Now, again, there's some people who look at that and say, wait, so what Jesus is saying is that if they had just not killed him, then all would have been good in the hood, right? Like, this would have worked out well. That's not what he's saying, but what he's truly getting into this idea is that their concept of kingdom was not the truth of the kingdom that Jesus was bringing in to the world through his reign. What Jesus' concern was is ushering in a new kingdom, a kingdom where there was no rich, where there was no poor, where there was no powerful, where there was no weak, where all things would be usurped, and that is not what they wanted. What they wanted was kingdom at their terms. And Jesus says, nope, we're not going to have that. Friends, Palm Sunday was hype. And those of you who have been with us throughout this study of the book of Luke have seen that. This is not, Palm Sunday, that, that like, celebration stuff was not the essence of what Jesus' ministry was. He was countercultural. He was bringing in a kingdom that was completely different than the one that those people desperately wanted. And how do we really perceive that it's hype? Within what happens just within a few days. Because after this event, five days later, we have the crowd who are unable then again, once again, to silence themselves, right? The whole crowd shouted away with this man, release Barabbas to us. And Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. So at this choice, they had Jesus, this gentle figure who had not harmed anyone, and a murderer, and at this point, they are cheering for his release. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, why? What crime has this man committed? I found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he'd been crucified. And this is the line that gets me every time. And their shouts prevailed. Friends, I'm going to say that the same group of people that were caught up in the hype as Jesus entered Jerusalem on a Sunday were caught up in the hype on a Friday when they said, we want him dead. And this is why we cannot believe the hype. And as much as we sometimes want a Jesus 
who is going to come in the conquering hero. That's not his M.O. I mean, he will be victorious. But friends, not in the way that many of us picture. And I would offer us today, I think that's one of the most difficult aspects about living the Christian life, isn't it not? Because we have this story, this narrative of victory. We serve Jesus, and many of us have been told from preachers and churches and, you know, about from good, well-intentioned Christian people that if you just follow Jesus, then it's all going to make sense. It all works itself out. And if it doesn't make sense, then you need to believe harder or better, and it will all make sense. But friends, I'm just telling you, as much as we can say that Jesus transforms our today and our eternity, sometimes it's just not going to equal out. Sometimes it's just not going to make sense. Sometimes we get caught up in the Christian hype surrounding what is happening in our lives. And we lean into it. And we're addicted to it. And when the hype doesn't deliver, then we think somehow that God has failed us. And I'm telling you, friends, is that's not the truth. The diversity of Jesus' life speaks to that of our very own. He went from a king on a Sunday to a criminal on a Friday, and what we need to do then is understand that it's not this well-paved path into the city. That sometimes it's an uneven journey on the back end of a jackass, right? Where we're trying to maintain our balance and just recognizing that God will bring us through, but it might not look the way we believe. Because if I'm writing the story, that's not how it ends. Like, isn't that right? If I'm writing this story, it ends on Palm Sunday. It ends on Jesus victorious. It doesn't end him hanging on a tree within a few days later. And I think that's what's important to you and I. Even in this season where we celebrate and we love Jesus, let's celebrate the true Jesus. Let's not get caught up in the hype. How do we do that? I think we just have to live consistency, consistently. The Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 speaks of this. And this would be like within the realm of Christian aphorism. You're like, this is just a list of things that it's all supposed to make sense. But just listen to what he says here. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Jesus. Friends, this path that Jesus took is very much like our lives. And if we don't get caught up in the hype of what it is, in our definition of what we think a good Christian life is, then I think we'll find some relief and some delivery. It's why we come together. It's why we celebrate. It's why we worship. And this week, like more so than any other, this week as we look at Jesus' march to Calvary, I think this is a great week that we get to worship and celebrate through communion. Because all of this comes to clarity. Yes, he was the king, and they crucified the king. And friends, we crucified the king. Jesus loves us, and in our sin, we nail him to the cross and he's there because of us but that's the beauty of who this guy was right it's the beauty of what God has designed because even in the midst of his death we have life so we're going to have a time of communion we're going to pass around the elements if you're a follower of Jesus we invite you to partake I'll pray we'll partake Heavenly Father we give you praise today we give you praise that you are the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords Father I give you praise for the life that you led 
for that you, Father, were willing to usurp systems that were corrupt in order to bring power to the weak. And Father, in our lives, day to day, sometimes it never makes sense to us. We worship you, we praise you, and yet we see the wicked prosper. We entrust you, Father, and we see injustices right and left. It makes no sense, but God, we realize that your justice will be established for eternity. And what might not make sense to us fully now, you help us to get through the day to day. And that's our prayer. Help us to get beyond hype. Help us to worship you, the crucified king. We thank you for this time to commune, for this bread and this cup, which reminds us of your death. We give you praise for it. Amen.